everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Future of Data in AI. I'm your host, Raja Iqbal. So today is a day, it is a privilege for me to host uh, Luis Serrano as our very first guest. Luis is one of the best educators out there who has uh, popularized generative AI and large language models. I am personally a big fan of his tutorials on transformers, attention mechanism, and embeddings, and some of the, some of the somewhat more uh, tricky mathematical concepts. I like um, uh, learning math by just visualizing it and looking at it as opposed to, as opposed to you know, just uh, sifting through the equations. And Lewis actually makes it very easy for me. Uh, well, personally, I'm an educator. I teach this topic, and I also learn from Lewis. Uh, so I look up to him. So, Lewis, it is a pleasure and a privilege to have you. Thank you for coming over. Thank you so much, Roger, for inviting me. Uh, it, it's neutral. I'm a huge fan of your work of Data Science Dojo, the way you all teach machine learning and data science and bring it to to everybody in such a comprehensive way. I, I really admire. So, so I'm very Thank happy you. to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let, let's get started, right? So I was uh, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and uh, and then trying to you know see where you're from and all of that. So tell us a little bit, right? So you are uh, so you are uh, uh, you're based in Toronto now. You work for Cohere at the moment, but uh, where you originally from? Where where were you born? What was what was it like uh, like growing up as a child? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I live in Toronto and I've lived in sort of Canada and the U.S. for for a while, bouncing back and forth. But yes, I am originally from Colombia, and uh, yeah, I grew up. I'm an only child. My mom raised me by herself, and uh, she she made a huge effort to give me all the education that was her thing for me, and just just stretching every penny to 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 give me the best uh, education. I'm always gonna be very very thankful for that, and that sort of gave me the the planted the seed for like me always being a learner and uh and and that's and that's pretty much what i've been what i've been doing there okay yeah. uh, i owe actually uh, i owe a lot to my, my both my parents but especially my mom and someone was asking me in one of the panel discussions so i i told them my mom did uh, very good prompt engineering for me right so you know so <laughs> she put the right guardrails and all of that right so and uh, she was a disciplinarian uh, and um, i owe a lot to my mom actually uh, yeah. So I mean, uh, do you think the same same way? I mean, was was she strict, yeah. uh, very academic? I mean, how how was it like growing up? Yeah, she was definitely strict. I had that an interesting. I had two very strong women uh, raising me because it was my grandma and my mom, and they had very different personalities. My my grandma was very sweet and soft. And my mom was like a strong, you know, strict um, person. And so it's it's interesting that I had sort of the two the two sides, um, but but the 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 common denominator was strength, right? Like it was not, you know, easy time for women. Never is, but it was much harder back then, and they had to develop this this resilience. And so, you know, growing up, I saw it. I see it much later. You know, you you analyze it back, and you and you see it uh, much more. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely, she was strict. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, are you grateful to her for like not oh. letting you slack off, right? So, you know, because when I was growing up, I mean, uh, I had kids in the neighborhood, they would just go and, you know, maybe not as disciplined as my mom would make me, right? So, and then at that time it was painful, right? Say, hey, why why do all the other kids get to play and I don't get to play? I mean, yeah. I'm, I, I used to play, but, you know, it's it's almost like uncontrolled, you know, fun, right? So, and that, that was not okay. So, I mean, yeah. 
how was it uh, for you? Yeah, I mean, I was always kind of the shy kid, uh, growing up very shy. So I wasn't that much into you know, playing it, but I, I did. Uh, but I was kind of, I was kind of nerdy all my life, like being inside and playing with, you know, Legos and building stuff. Like it was always that, I always had that side. So I was not that much trouble as in like going outside and doing things. Uh, it was also like, you know, that a city that was not so super safe in a, in a time that was not safe. So go, going outside was, was a challenge. They would always be like, no, I kind of stay, stay close where I can see you. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was not that much troubled that, uh, uh, in, in that sense. Uh, but I did have, uh, I, I, I was very, I was a distracted kid. Like, you know, uh, my, my mind was everywhere. So like, you know, paying attention stuff like that, that was always like getting me to sit down and, and do homework was, was very, very challenging. So I, I don't know how she did it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's wonderful. So I was looking at, um. Um, uh, I learned that you were part of the team that represented Colombia and, uh, did I say it right? Colombia? It's Colombia. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it, rep uh, so you represented Colombia, uh, as a high school student in 1998 and 1999 yeah. and actually won for a bronze medal for yeah. Colombia in the, um, in the math Olympiad. Yeah. So how was it like? Just tell us, uh, how did it go? I mean, did you prepare a lot? How did it all start? Oh, I, the, the story, how it started is, is funny. Uh, yeah, but this was the, the, I mean, the highlights, if my life had a reel of highlights, that's the first one. Um, yeah, being able to go to this, this competitions was just an amazing experience and meeting people from all over the world and just having that thirst to solve problems and, and that it, it really was, and then being able to travel at, at that age with, with your friends. I mean, I, that is to me that the, the best experience, uh, I've had. Uh, and obviously, yeah, you travel for like a week, but you train. It's kind of like being an athlete, like you travel for a, a little bit, but you're studying the whole time. Um, it started really funny because I used to fail mathematics in high school. I used to, I used to hate math. And as a matter of fact, it was eighth grade when I was the only one that failed in my class. We were at 108 and uh, I was the only one who failed mathematics. It was failing that year. And, uh, so I, I hated mathematics, like, because it was just formulas and, and, and technicalities. And it was like a following instructions, right? Like they tell you what to do and then they quiz you on how to do it. So it was like, but I didn't know I hated it because of that. I thought I hated it because I hated mathematics. Like, and I, this is, this is what I was going to ask you. Did you hate yeah. math or did you hate, uh, the way it was taught, uh, or you did not know what you hated? Right? Now I know that I hated the way it was taught but I thought I hated math. And so, so many people, when they say, oh, I hate math, I'm so bad at math. I'm like, no, 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 you hate technicality, you hate abstraction, but you don't hate math. Math is everywhere. Math is just the way we- And it is right. beautiful, right? It, it, it is, is just the most amazing thing. It's starting, right? Yeah, it's like music, right? Like you listen to music and it's beautiful, but if I just show you a bunch of partitures and, and cheap music, then you just be like, well, what is it? And if that was what they showed us first, we would think it's awful but it's beautiful. But in math, they show you the formulas first and, and not the thinking. So I hated mathematics. And then we, uh, there was the national exam. Uh, I was lucky that I was in a school that would always do the national math exam. They would take time off. And so I thought if I skip two hours of class, that's wonderful, right? Because I was an awful student in every subject, really. Um, I just couldn't concentrate. I don't, I, I 
don't have that. Like I, I have ADD. I just, I just cannot focus on anything. So I was an awful student, but at the time, you know, you don't think, oh, there's a difficulty in learning. You just think the kid is stupid because that's how we talked back in the time. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I just thought of me as, as a person who is just not intelligent. And then I took this exam, the national math exam, because I would skip two hours of class and I would just be like, oh, I'll doodle, I'll doodle for two hours. And then I go into the exam and I think it's the math exam, which is awful for me, but there's no formulas. There's very little formulas. It was all puzzles. It was all games. And I loved puzzles. You know, I was, I was always nerdy, but not a good student, right? Like I loved, I don't know, there were like magazines with the puzzles that I would used to do and I would play games with puzzles and little, like I would always love that. Um, but it didn't occur to me that that could be math. But in this exam, it was just puzzles. And so I enjoyed it. I just like, well, you know, if I'm here for two hours, I might as well. And so I, I really enjoyed the exam. Um, but I didn't think much of it. So I just left and, you know. And then one day I'm walking in and, and the math teacher uh, comes in and says, oh, hello, okay, uh, congratulations, Luis. And I'm like, and I thought to myself, did she congratulate me because I finally passed an exam? Like, uh, <laughs> is this being sarcastic? And uh, he was very nice. He was like, you did very well in the Olympics. And I was like, oh, really? How did I do? And he said, well, you were first. And I thought, oh my God, I, I've never been first in school at anything. Mm -hmm. I said, no, you were first in the country. And I was like, in the country, how am I going to be first in the country if I'm the stupidest one in the class, right? Like, and so it turns out I was the first in the country. And then I started liking math class, but because I started seeing it differently, you know? Um, and I did, did get lucky with some teachers. Like this teacher, for example, was was actually one that explained it very well. When I started looking at what he did, it, I started liking it. But here's the highlight that the price for winning the math Olympiad, if you're top something, like 30 or something, then the price is price is that in the summer, in this vacation, they send you to math camp. So it doesn't sound like a price. Yeah, I, I, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, did you see did you see that as a punishment at that time, right? So hey, I mean, yeah, some to, to a math camp. No, so I went to math camp, and it was it was a, a lot of things because first of all, uh, well, mathematically, like first socially it was amazing because in the school, like I was always bullied. You know, I didn't like it, and uh, when I went to math camp, I was with, with people like me. You know, I just so socially it was a huge thing. And when you're that, that age, you know, 14, 15, like social is everything, right? So to me, that was already, even if I hated the math, that was already the thing. And, um, but here's the main thing, right? Like I walk into the first day of, of, of math camp and it was very, it was difficult, like the, the challenging as hell. And, but they would never do what they do in school, which is that they teach you the method and then make you apply it right they discuss it they don't they don't quiz you in that they start with a problem so the first day we got there and the teacher just puts a problem on the board and says go and i'm like how am i gonna solve that you didn't tell me how to solve it it's like well that's the point you figure it out and then they would give us hints you know i'd say like oh i tried this and they would help and somebody would pass to the board and solve it and stuff and to me, that was that made a difference in in how I see education, right? Because it's not teaching us to be followers, but to figure things out. When I do that, when I teach, I never give quizzes after. I always give quizzes before. I don't go, 
how do you do this after I told you? No, before I tell you, how would you do this? And you get the most amazing ideas. Like you get, I get like ideas that are sometimes better than, than what the standard thing was. So, so yeah, so that opened my mind and then I was obsessed and then I just continued. I skipped a lot of school for going to the Olympias. I, I loved it. I would fail in school. It doesn't matter. I'm never there. Who cares? Uh, I, I barely passed school, but, uh, but yeah, the Olympiads were, were, were just my life. And I would go there. There were two trainings a year in the summer vacation and the winter vacation. It was Columbia, so it was no, no season, but it's the same. But it was in December and June. And if you kind of keep going up and if you do well in the high levels, which uh, that was my last two years of school, then you get into the team of six people that go represent in the IMO, in the math Olympiad. And uh, everybody's just obsessed to go to that thing. Like everybody wants to go. You work so hard to get there. And when you get there, then the, the, the training is super intensive. Like you train, like we, we had a, a camp who was like trained at midnight, uh, you know, the whole day. It was, you, you were just like an athlete, like you were focused. And somehow I could focus on that. I could not focus on anything in school and classes, but, but I would hyper focus when it was about solving problems. And yeah, I mean, we did well. I mean, some countries do amazing, you know, China, uh, India, like Russia, they, they're just amazing. Uh, we were like, you know, so-so, like we, we did okay. Um, but uh, but it was the most amazing experience. It shaped my way of thinking. It shaped the way I make decisions. It, it shaped absolutely everything. And I'm still in touch with Mary Falk is the person who runs that Olympiad. And I'm still, go visit her all the time. She's such an amazing uh, human that has made this so much for me that I, I'm so thankful to the Olympiads. And uh, you, uh, when you won the bronze medal, um, so I'm sure that Russia was there, uh, Eastern Europe, I mean, some countries from the, yeah. right? so then they were there, uh, Singapore, China, I'm assuming, um, India, yeah, yeah, yeah. so South Asia, I mean, so these countries, they may have been there, right? So so how was it like, I mean, winning the bronze medal? For, yeah, no, it's and, amazing. Was it the first time uh, Colombia uh, winning? Well, no, I got to I gotta clarify something. There's more medals, right? Like, it's not first, second, and third. Like, I wasn't third in the world. Uh, the third in the world was, you know, somewhere <laughs> so China or something. Uh, they, they, th there's a bunch of golds and a bunch of silvers and a bunch of bronzes. Mm. And so Colombia did get, did get, uh, medals. We got the, some bronzes sometimes. We got some, I said, silvers and one gold uh, back in the day. Uh, China normally gets six golds or five golds. Uh, and, uh, the, the, the top countries do very well, but yeah, to get a medal, you have to be ranked high and I, I was very very happy um yeah I think I think a lot is your math but a lot of it is your self-esteem and I think I, I I think I had the math you know like it was I was very well trained uh, if I went back I think I would go with more self-esteem because when you come in and you know that you're not in a country doesn't do normally so well it's kind of like in the Olympics right like if you're competing in against somebody who's just Every time they win gold, you you get intimidated, and I think that I think that that helped. Like that, we we I went in intimidated. Uh, uh, I think I, uh, yeah, I think we we had great great trainings, and uh, in, in retrospect, I think I think if you know, I would have had more confidence, would have been better. But and I think most of the years I spent in the Olympias, more than developing my math, was developing my confidence. You know, and I think that happened to a lot of us. Like we talk about it when I see with my friends with who went in the same teams were like, yeah, I'm gonna think, I think we had a pretty good level and, and I think we should have been more confident, you know? But it did develop my confidence a lot. Like it just kept, kept you know, it, it did a lot for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and uh, I'm assuming that uh, 
um, going from someone who hated math to someone who has, for the rest of his life, uh, being passionate about math, do you think winning that uh, um, within country uh, competition or Olympiad, uh, yeah. was that the turning point for you? Uh, oh, that was a big turning point, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that helped me throughout all my life, you know. I, I'm, I've always had difficulties. I, I'm always going to have them, like in many things. It, it, it never was, like, easy uh, after that. But it did give me a, a, a good start. And then it made me take the best decision I've taken, which is to study mathematics, you know. Uh, at the time in, in, I think it was the time, like, late 90s. And, and in, in, in Colombia, like, I think the, 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 the mentality was, like, you have to do something that gives you money. And so everybody was like, well, if you know math, you should study engineering, you should study economics, you should study something like business that gives you money. And I'm like, I, I just thinking like, if I'm awful at school, I'm going to be awful at these things, right? I can only do math. It's the only thing I can do. It's the only, like, literally, I have to figure out a career based on math, which at the time it was not easy, not obvious. Right now, you can think of the data science. So you can, you can study math and do well, but at the time it didn't exist. So it was not, a, but I couldn't do any other thing. And so I just... It was just a decision I I took, and then I I never knew what I was gonna do in my life. I just knew that I enjoyed it. So you know, just going through undergrad and then grad school. The decision was always easy because I just wanted to do a little more math for a little longer. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be a great decision, but at the time, the only thing I could do. Uh, and you mentioned your um, grad school, like going to a master's and a PhD yeah. in math. So did you always uh, have this in mind that you're going to be a mathematician or you thought that, yeah, I will learn it and I will figure out maybe, you know, so what was going on? I Or you were just smelling the roses along and they just really doing what you were enjoying. I was smelling the roses. I, I always, I only took decisions on the next step. When I went into math, I just knew it was the thing I liked. That's it. And I, I thought I'll figure something out on the way. Uh, when I was finishing math, I started understanding what the academic career is. And so the academic career, and you know, a PhD, right? Like the academic career is, is uh, you know, you, you do a, a master's sometimes, a master's sometimes in some places, you go straight to PhD. But the fact is you do a PhD and then you do postdoc and then you become a professor and then you do math for the rest of your life. And that's what all my friends were doing in math. There are very few who would who would switch to other places, but the majority was just like, being a professor. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to be a math professor. And so I took the next step that was a master's and the next step that was a PhD and the next step that was a postdoc. I never questioned, should I do this? I was more concerned of where can I go? Like how, what can I do to get into the best possible place or what can I do? Like that was the only concern. Where, where, where do I go for the next step? But it was never, should I do the next step or not? Because it was just, you know, the, the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, when you finished, uh, when you finished your PhD, um, your first job was at Google as a machine learning engineer. Yes, 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 yes. And uh, you were working on personalization and uh, video recommendations. Yeah, right. yeah. So it uh, please go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So it uh, so it looks like the teaching was not the top priority at the moment. What was going on in your mind? Because uh, post Google, everything is teaching. Most of it is teaching, right? So, yeah. but prior to Google, uh, prior to between your PhD and now, right? So there was this brief period. What was going on? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, 
I, in retrospect, I would I would love to explain it as a story of how I planned things and how I was brave to make switches. At the time, it was just a struggle, you know. Mathematics, uh, I I was I I liked mathematics, but I didn't think of it in the way I I wasn't like everybody else. My friends were very brilliant, like high level. They were thinking high level, like they would understand things very quickly. They would do research. It was always in high level. They would speaking formula stuff. I always had difficulty with formulas and I was lagging behind a little bit by in classes. I would always take a little longer to understand. I would always have to bring everything down. Mathematics is a very levels of abstraction. Like you learn the basics and then there's lemmas on top and then you theorems. At, at this level, people talk and it sounds like philosophy. Like it sounds just, and, and I can never understand that. I always have to bring it down, right? And so that took me forever. So for research, for example, I was slower. Like I was a slower researcher than than my peers. Uh, I I always found that teaching was was easy. Like I I would my talks people would go like my classes were full. I was teaching was always came up easy, but the research didn't. And I didn't somehow the passion for my the research wasn't there. Like I still did it, and I had a great group and and stuff. But I was always the one who was trying to understand it to explain it. So I was the explainer. I would give the talk, mm-hmm. uh, but it was just research wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't, I, I started questioning it. It really wasn't my thing. And, and if you do like a year before, cause everything you do in academics is you apply a year ahead or something to, to a position, like everything's not like tech, which you apply it two days before. Uh, mm. so I started thinking that maybe I wanted to do something else and I didn't know what, I just knew I wanted to survive and the chances of, of getting a job as a professor that I wanted as a place that I wanted and that I was going to do well in my life were not, not that high. And so I started, uh, just looking at other things and just learn how to program. I knew a little bit, but I, I wasn't really that much. So I took some courses in programming and machine learning and I started liking it. And, you know, at the same time as I was applying for professorships, I was applying for other things and, you know, exactly as I predicted that at the, didn't, I didn't get any professor position. And so I started thinking, okay, I, 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 now I really need to do something else. And I started, um, interviewing in different industries. So I, I tried in finance or consulting things that my friends went when they left academia. It was common to leave academia because it's a bottleneck. Like there's all these students, there's all these postdocs and there's all these professors and not everybody gets a job. And I was one of them. So I, I had to figure it out. And funny enough, you know. People think I went to Google because the world was my oyster and I just picked Google. No, it was actually the only place. Like I, I wasn't, you know, I knew a lot of math, but a lot of industries was not, you know, I'd get interviews, but it was clear that I wasn't for them and they weren't for me. Uh, somehow, uh, yeah, and, and, a, and a job as a programmer, I didn't know how much how to program. So like, I, you know, it wasn't that clear. But a friend told me who had left, who had left academia for Google, like he called me and said, Hey, we should come to Google. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to program it well. And he said, no, neither do I. The, the interview is math. And indeed, I went to the interview and there was a bunch of math questions, like a bunch of the stuff I liked, the puzzles I liked to do, like the stuff I was doing from the Olympias, like that helped me. So I went in and did really well in the interview. And somehow I, I wouldn't have done well if, if, if it was as, like another data science company where they need someone to do the stuff immediately. Google could take a bet on somebody because they had taken a lot of bets on, on academics that move in. They don't know programming that well, but if they can, you know, if, if, if you can push through a PhD, you can push through a lot of things. And so they, so I ended up at Google 
And that's why I had those two years of, of not teaching of, of programming. Uh, I, I just wanted to have a job that I could eat. I, I didn't really think of where my career was going and it seemed like I would open doors and it, and it did it, it, it opened doors. Yeah. But I struggle at Google, you know, uh, cause I'm not a, I'm not a programmer. Yeah. So I can, I can elaborate more. I can relate to so many things that you're doing, right? And sometimes I tell people, right? So, you know, when they say, hey, did you, um, because I'm, I also first, I mean, some, if someone asks me, I tell them I'm an educator first uh, before yeah. anything else, right? So machine learning, everything else, right? So entrepreneurship, all of that, it comes later, but um, at heart, I'm an educator, right? So I enjoy explaining things. I can relate to so many things, actually, that you mentioned, um, uh, right after uh, finishing my PhD, uh, you know, getting a, a good academic position, it is hard, right? So you can get a small, you know, college or, you know, you can you can get it, right? But getting into a good school uh, as a professor, uh, as a tenure track, it is very hard. And when I tell them, I mean, Microsoft was the only job I had at that time, being an international student, I took it, right? Um, but uh, I can relate to so many things, right? So uh, when I came in, uh, at Microsoft, I was, as you say, because um, um, the I, I would call them kids, right? So the, who I, it took me six years after my bachelor's to get my PhD, right? So and these uh, folks who had been programming for six six years already, I was behind, right? So I can, uh, and I was behind. Not that I was not smart. I worked hard, right? So, but then you um, then I joined Bing, and Bing I was doing a lot of experimentation, and then it became mathematical. I started teaching within Bing, uh, you know, people, machine learning was up and yeah, coming. So, so, so many things. I mean, one thing led to another. So I can, I can totally, I mean, at least uh, I'm, I'm one of the people in this world who will totally relate to you, how your journey actually unfolded, right? So, uh, so that's, uh, that's amazing, right? So mm -hmm. I, I get that. Yeah, I think, think um, for sure. Yeah, and then you moved to Udacity, right, doctor? Yes. So people are like, oh, that's so brave that you left Google. Why did you leave Google? And I never tell the story. I get that too. I get yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm curious of how why, why, how it changed for you. I'll, I'll tell you how it was for me. Like I, it, I I didn't think about it. It was not a brave decision. I was struggling. I was, I was fired from Google. Like I was actually, I'm not a programmer. Like I, I can program, but I'm very slow. And I like to think everything just like it happened in math. Like my struggles in math were because I can't think in high level and I have to bring everything to the basics. And with code, it was the same thing. So I was like trying to understand the models and how they work. And I was like, oh, this is a, you recommend with like a neural network. How does a neural network work? And I would be obsessed on, on that. And of course, I had to write code faster and get things done. And so I, I was just slow. Like I couldn't do it, you know? And so but I learned a lot. Uh, and after two years, you know, it was clear, like, and so it was, you know, my, my, my boss was very kind. We were like, had a good relationship and, you know, she said, no, oh, you can like, you know, if you get these things done, then you're okay. But if you, if you don't, you know, you have to go, but you know, I would, I would, I were you, I would use this time to find something else. And so I thought I was very depressed because first of all, I failed in, you know, in research is what I wanted and then programming, which is, you know, in two years I had two big failures. It, after a life of many, you know, great things I had before. So it was, I was very depressed, but I had to go back and say, what do I want? And I thought, okay, I'm just thinking survival. I'm not thinking about thriving. I'm thinking, how do I survive? And I thought maybe if I go as a programmer to another place, it's not, it's not the level of the place. That's the problem here. Like, I'm not going to do it. 
So I need to see what am I good at and whatever it is, I need to go to that. And it turns out that, you know, I, when I was in academia, the research was so-so, but the teaching was amazing. And when I was at Google, it turns out that, you know, I was teaching on the weekends, like in webinars. And I was teaching, like, if, if people came to visit, like, I would be the one giving the talk and, and stuff like that. So I thought I just have to teach, like, that's what I have to do, wherever it is. So I thought maybe I'll go teach high school, maybe I'll go as a, as a teacher, like as, a, as an instructor at university or something. And one day I was taking courses online because I was taking a lot of courses online and then Udacity pops up and it was just like lectures by people who worked in the industry and they were really, they were good teachers, you know? And I thought, oh, I could do this. Like I could teach online stuff. I'm always doing that. Like I'm always explaining stuff all the time. Uh, and so I just applied and luckily I was in Silicon Valley. So I was across the street. So I crossed the street to the interview and the interview was explaining anything you want. And so since I always try to understand these algorithms, I thought, okay, well, maybe let me explain how a neural network works. And I used to think about them with like, I don't know, rabbits that, you know, had big ears. And if you have big ears, you're, you're here in this spectrum here and small. And then there was the lines that would decide if, like I made a really, the explanation that I knew that I, that I used to understand that would slow me down because I had to explain myself everything with cartoonish scenarios and I gave them that and they were like oh my god it's exactly what we need and then I started Udacity and it was the first time that I absolutely clicked with a job you know because what they what I had was exactly what what they needed was exactly what I had and so it was the most productive period of my life we were building and it was when like AI was starting to get super popular you know when discriminative AI and uh, neural networks and all this stuff and so I was learning the stuff and teaching it immediately with a team of educators that were amazing. And I, we created so much stuff, like so many courses. It was just the first time that I really was like in the perfect harmony uh, with, with my environment. And after that, I've always been teaching, you know, I've been moving around, but it's always gravitated towards, towards teaching. Like my jobs are always like in a company, the teacher. <laughs> and I do my own thing too with the YouTube channel and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, that is wonderful. I'm curious. Uh, oh, please go ahead. Yeah. Your transition now, how did you go? When did you say I, I'm a teacher? When did you decide like, this is what I'm going to do? And I mean, actually, I, I was the teacher all along, right? So because uh, after my undergrad, I wanted to teach. Then I got uh, into a, my PhD program. I, I got my undergrad in Pakistan, right? So right after I was applying for grad school as well, got into a PhD program right after my undergrad, fully funded. I said, okay, I will leave, right? So, but even right after my undergrad, I wanted to teach, right? So um, I told you how I ended up at Microsoft and within Microsoft, there were opportunities. Uh, uh, they were there, we used to have a bootcamp for all the new Bing employees. So, and Bing, I joined at a time where there was, uh, there was a joke, right? So. They are hiring people so they can have more users for Bing, right? So in those early days, right? So, you know, it's early days. I joined Bing and then uh, I, so that this teaching, the bug uh, was already there, right? Mm -hmm. So always there. Uh, so I would teach. And then actually when I left Microsoft, I did not leave Microsoft for uh, teaching. Data Science Dojo did not happen at least until maybe another year after 
um, I started Data Science Dojo. So I started another something else. And then I was doing Data Science Dojo. It was a small meetup group in Seattle. I was teaching for free. The same thing. I was just doing it for fun on the side, really uh, with no compensation in mind. Um, the other startup was not going anywhere. And then I had this idea, hey, why don't I start uh, charging people for, you know, for for this and then rest is history right after that when uh, we launched i mean I, I think the timing was right uh you know we started around 2014 right so and the machine learning was everyone was trying to figure out um so we created this curriculum i still think it is one of the for our data science bootcamp it is one of the best curriculums because you know having done all of that at microsoft so we were the only bootcamp at that time that was teaching a b testing for instance, right? Okay. So many boot camps were out there because, you know, but design of experiments, all of that, we would teach it because I knew that uh, it is an important thing in the, uh, in the toolkit of a data scientist. But after that, uh, yeah, I mean, one thing led, leads to another, another, right? So I just said goodbye to the other startup and then my, my other startup, right? So it didn't go anywhere. But uh, this one started and then, now awesome well i'm glad i'm glad you did it i did it uh, but i enjoy it right so when people uh, going back to it right so sometimes and i've seen many people right so a lot of a uh, lot of professionals they define their worth based on which company they work for or they or what title do they have or what seniority what ladder level that yeah. they, ha uh, they have are they l7 or l6 we very often we leave, live someone else's life. You know, we are, uh, there is this, and and so sometimes, I mean, when you pick uh, something that you love and you can make a living out of it, that's the, the best situation to be in because, you know, the paycheck is just a bonus. You're you're enjoying it, right? So that's, yeah. uh, then I, I, I can see this happening in your case. Yeah, for me, like, I, I heard once that when you, it, uh, there's a few like sentences that are like describing that like cliches, but they are nice. Like one is like, if you like what you do, you, you're not going to work a day of your life. It, it doesn't feel like work, okay. just what you're doing. And another is that you don't, when you like something, you don't, you don't look for reasons to do it. You look for excuses, right? Like I just have to do it and it's my thing. And yeah, I think that sort of standardization of, of our way of thinking, it's be, it starts with education. I mean, they make us well in standard stuff and and be be followers and be trying to like be try to mold us into the perfect student that then morphs into the perfect professional that has all these check marks and uh, i don't know maybe there's someone that for whom that works perfectly but i think the majority doesn't you know and, I, and i'm glad that i never i was able to fit that mold uh because then you were forced to look for your own thing right like to look for what's what's your passion and Gotta align two things, you know. I think you gotta align what you like to do for fun, like a sudoku or a crossword puzzle or playing, running outside, whatever, and what you want for the world, right? Like, what is it that that the, the purpose that you have for for humanity? And I I'm I'm sure that it aligns for you in in the same way as it aligns for me, right? Like, education is a place where you can bring opportunities to other and and level the playing field and 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 uh, that's sort of a, the purpose. And then I just like to teach whether it whether it's useful or not. I like to do it, right? 
So yeah, thank you. Alignment. Um, so the, I, I noticed that you you also um, work for a company in quantum computing. Yeah. So what was uh, what was uh, did you go back to industry uh, once again in a more of a product development type role or what was your role at that company yeah that was very interesting and i just you know when i had like uh two big career changes in my life and they somehow paid off even though there were difficulties i kind of get confident of like career changes are good. And so I was at Apple, uh, educating and teaching at the Central Apple University. I was really enjoying it because I was giving boot camps and like internal consulting. But a very good friend of mine, called Alejandro Perdomo, who's a top quantum scientist, uh, turns out that she, he, him and I were talked a lot and I would pick his brain in quantum computing the entire time. I was always interested. I didn't know what it was. And one day I decided to send him a message and I said, I have a great idea you and I write a quantum computing book, okay? I don't know about quantum computing, but I know how to explain stuff. So you explain it to me and I write the book. And he said, no, no, that works, but I have a counter offer. Come work with me. <laughs> and um, and I thought my, my first thought was, I don't know how to, I don't know any quantum computing. But then, you know, I also didn't know programming when I went to Google so, and I learned there. So I thought, okay. So it turns out that there was it, the job was researcher, like it was a researcher in quantum computing and quantum machine learning. And so I knew the machine learning and a bunch of people knew the quantum computing and were learning the machine learning. And I came in knowing the machine learning and learning quantum computing. So it was amazing. Learning from this guy was just amazing because he knows so much. And um, to me, it was like doing a master's. You know, I didn't think a lot of people even inside the company said, well, you know, you know that this may not work, right? And I was like, ah, okay. That's like doing a master's and getting paid for it, right? And it indeed was, you know, and I did some work, you know, it was, it was research again, again, my thing is not research, but I was, I was enjoying it, learning a lot and we did get some interesting results. Uh, and it, it, it pushed me towards working in generative learning because quantum is very much involved in actually, I believe, uh, and I got this from this, you know, from Alejandro, like that, that, you know. Quantum is more of a generative thing than than classical, and I think that would be the advances. So I got more into generative learning, uh, and I yeah, I, mean, I I really enjoyed working on that. I, I I learned so much, and it was it was a good bet, you know. And uh, can you can you explain like the simple in the for a layperson what is quantum <laughs> computing? For many of many of us might not actually know what it is. Yeah. So actually, the thing is, computers have bits, right? It's a one or a zero, and it's a one or it's a zero. That's it, right? Well, when quantum computers have qubits, which is anything between zero and one. Actually, I the simplest analogy is like a switch that's on or off. And this is like a slider that you can put in on or off or like in romantic, you know, and like in the middle. Uh, and you can put it in anywhere. So it's imagine a number and anything between zero and one. And there's more because it's actually a whole, imagine a spherical switch, okay? A light switch that's spherical. And if I'm in the North Pole, then I'm turned fully on. And if I'm in the South Pole, then the light is fully off. And if I'm anywhere in the equator, it's half half. And as high as I am, the higher I am, the higher, uh, the the more light, the, the more the more one is, and the lower you are, the more zero is. And it's a full sphere. Um, however, it's in this is the quantum, this is the understanding that quantum computing has. Nobody really knows 
why or if it is, but it's the only thing that matches with uh, with the observations, which is that if you don't look at it, then it's it's somewhere the the little the special point is anywhere in the in the sphere. But the moment you look at it, it either goes up or goes down to the North Pole or the South Pole. And if it's more high, if it's higher, it's more likely to go up. If it's in the North Pole, it stays in the North Pole. If it's in the South Pole, it stays in the South Pole. If it's in the equator, it goes 50-50. And if it's lower, it's more likely to go down, you know. Just like, yeah, if you were going to put two magnets and one of them pulls the little special point. So, but here's here's what's interesting. I think here's where the thing clicks. And I'm going to be kind of high level here. Uh, but imagine that you're in a computer and you want to do an operation to the number one and to the number zero. I want to square it or add one or something. I do an, I need to do an operation to the one and then the operation to the zero. I need to do two things. But if here I have a qubit that's in between and I do the operation to that thing, I'm doing the operation to both at the same time, the zero state and the one state. So I need to do one operation here while I'm doing two here. Okay. Now imagine this doing two more. Oh, I'm getting the, the zoom. <laughs> if I do this, I get I get the... Oh, so you, this is your setting on zoom? I think I have that setting. I got to watch out. I can't I can't do too many great story things because I get <laughs> okay. images. But anyway, uh, as I was saying, uh, on the classical land, you have to do two operations to the zero and to the one. Whereas in the quantum world, I do one operation to the qubit in between. So that's two to one. It's not that much. But imagine having many qubits here. And here I have qubits that are entangled, which is something else completely uh, different. And I do less operations when I have to do more operations here. And it's exponential, right? So here I have two, two to the n and here one to the n, which is less. Of course, when I observe it, a lot of stuff gets lost. So that's the catch, right? Uh, but if I do it, if you do it in a, in, a, in a smart way, then you can save a lot of operations by doing things here correctly and measuring them correctly. And so imagine, a, imagine things that are exponentially hard here are, are linear here. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of complications, but that's the principle. So you can do things like, for example, factoring numbers, right? Like, you know, the cryptography um, is based on if you can factor any number. Uh, so for that, for example, like I can say three times five is 15. That's easy for a computer. And that's also easy if I have huge numbers, multiplying is easy. But if I say 15 is three times five, that's factoring, which is much harder. Because if a computer is given a millions of, 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 of digits, a, a number with millions of digits, it's not able to factor. It takes millions of years. And that's a basis of cryptography, right? Like, you know this, right? Like, so it's a basic cryptography that if I were to factor numbers, I could I could break most cryptography. And, 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 and quantum computers have an algorithm, Schwarz algorithm, that makes it really much faster to factor by using this principle, you know, and, and others. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it's, I, it's really interesting. I, I, I loved learning about it. I had to relearn a lot of linear algebra that I, that I thought I knew and I, and I didn't understand so deeply. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And do you think that quantum computing can have any implications in terms of generative AI? Well, I conceptually I do, because here's the thing: I I feel like classical computers are supervised learning machines, right? Because you put the input, an image, and the output, which is yes if or no if it's a dog or not. Like that's it's completely deterministic, right? Quantum computers are not good at that. 
But when it comes to generative learning, classical computers are, are great as we've seen, but they always have some difficulty, which is generating random numbers, right? Like anything you do again or something, you have to generate a random number and feed it through the thing or, or sampling is difficult because at the end of the day, what's the simplest generative learning problem? The simplest generative learning problem is flip a coin, like generate a number between zero, which is zero or one, generate a bit randomly. That's the simplest generative model in existence because it generates the basic unit of information and computers cannot do that. Like a classical computer cannot generate a random number. It can pretend, right? It can do a, a pseudo random number, but they're not random. If I were to recreate the conditions of the universe and press the same button, I get the same number, you know? Whereas quantum computer, it's the complete opposite. Cannot control it. It gives you random stuff, even if you don't want to. And so the simplest generative model, which is, um, which is generating a random number is the, is the hello world of a quantum computer. The first thing you learn in quantum computing is generate one random number and they're random. Like there, this is truly randomness. And so if you make that bigger, then the, the generative models, the quantum generative models don't have the difficulties that the classical generative models have, which is, you know, that the sampling, you don't know if you generate the right number to input the thing, you don't have that problem here. And so if you train a circuit in the same way as you train a neural network, you train a quantum circuit to start, to start throwing out the stuff that looks like your data, um, we, we actually empirically saw results that it, it was better. Like experimentally, we compared it to an RBM or to an autoencoder or to a GAN even. And this one of the same size, obviously, because you have to do apples to apples, a, a, a circuit of, the, of a small size actually did better than its classical counterparts in the experiments we did. We don't have, you know, a theoretical uh, proof that it's better, but we ran the same thing with the same number of qubits as the bits here. And it just, it just had a better luck. I'll give an example. Let's say, uh, like, like it, it generalized better. For example, like if I give you uh, bit strings of length four, and I always coincidentally gives you ones with two ones, right? I say one, one, zero, zero, no, with an even number of ones, zero, 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 one, zero, one, 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 like things with an even number of ones. If I feed you that data, the model learns to do to generate that data. However, the quantum one kind of learned the rule. It started learning that it was an even number of ones and it started generating stuff that was not in the data set, far from the data set that satisfied the rule. Whereas the classical always kind of stayed close to the data. It would generate things that was close to the data. The other one would come up with something crazy that was not close to being in the data set, but somehow satisfied the rule that I gave the data set. So, we saw that and it was encouraging. You know, obviously we need bigger quantum computers. Uh, there's no question about that because the classical computers are humongous. Uh, so that's a huge, like it may or may not happen, like technologically it may or may not happen. But I thought that at least conceptually it was nice that it was better, that it showed better science at generating things. Yeah. On the other hand, it was not good at supervised. It was, some people have done great in supervising quantum computing, but it was then you see difficulties because they're not deterministic. I could say one plus one and it says, well, maybe it's two, but maybe it's two million with a small probability, you know? So found that supervised learning was a classical computer thing and general learning was a quantum computer thing in, in principle.
Um, that, that's great. I mean, thanks. Uh, thanks for the explanation here. Um, you you ended up in Cohere uh, toward the end of uh, 2022, right? So yeah. How did that happen? You were already in Canada back then, right? So you were in Toronto. I was in Canada. Yeah, I was. Um, I was at. You know, so at I was kind of like I was a researcher, but I always gravitated towards teaching. So I was working in like you know giving courses and blog posts and talks and stuff like that. And um, yeah, so Jay Alamar called me, which is you must know him. He's a, a great educator, friend of mine. And uh, he said, "Hey, we're building a course in LLMs, and you know, I don't know if you're free, but you know, with like." And Jay was a friend before go here. Yes, we, we worked right. at Udacity together. I see. Uh, and I loved his teaching. Like it's amazing. Uh, he's amazing. Yes. Oh my God. Without a doubt. Yeah. I, I learned. He teaches me uh, the machine learning. Like uh, so. So he called me at, and so I took it seriously because, you know, uh, and then I interviewed and it turns out that the other two people in the team that was building the course were people I was a fan of already. There was Sandra Kulik, who's a YouTuber and uh, wrote a book in LLMs. And there was Mio Armour, who also wrote a book in, a great book in machine learning that I had actually been in touch with before. So I was like, oh my God, I want to work in this team. So <laughs> it just made sense. And the, yeah, it started, the, the boom of LLMs was kind of starting. Uh, actually a little before ChatGPT came a month after, uh, so it was, uh, in retrospect, I mean, I could say it was a great visionary move, but it wasn't, I just wanted to be there, but in hindsight, uh, it's, it's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. a month before the boom of LLMs, I joined an LLM company, uh, and yeah, and, and my job is to build the course. So we build this course called LLM university. Yeah. And one of the best, right? By the way, so I uh, I picked up a lot of concepts uh, that I was not clear on uh, from Cohere. Cohere is uh, one of the best documentations out there. On Thank you. Like, I'm so happy to hear. Yeah, I enjoyed the. Really yes, I mean I, I can imagine, right? So I mean because it's almost like you're still working in industry, you're still connected to product, but still you're more in a teaching type role, right? So I think and yeah. that's uh, the best position to be in. I'm always going to be teaching. And I love that I can talk to experts and ask them stuff. Like I just have like a, I can go and ask a million questions to somebody and, you know, so I love it. So I always yeah. might feel like I'm doing grad school and, and learning stuff, you know, and, and getting paid for it. So <laughs> I like yeah. it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's a good posi- situation to be in actually. Yeah. So let's, let's move on to uh, perhaps uh, more of the, the current, uh, the AI, uh, how AI has evolved. So reflecting on the evolution of AI, yeah, can you paint a picture of how it has transformed over the years uh, to the present day? And uh, how do you see it uh, or envision it changing uh, in, in maybe shorter term or longer term? What do you think is going to be uh, changing? And, you know, Let's talk more about technology first, and then maybe we can talk about the society angle in a moment. Yeah, so I'll answer the technology one, and then we'll get to the society, which also opens up a whole new topic. Um, well, technology, it's been wonderful because I, I got into AI like maybe uh, 10 years ago when the boom of like uh, discriminate, discriminatory AI, right? Like the one that answers questions, yes or no questions or numbers. You know, is this image a, a cat or not? Is the sentence happy or not? Is the email spam or not? Like it just answers questions that we can answer, but faster and sometimes more accurately. Um, so that was wonderful. And at the time, everybody was, uh, it was common thing to say, well, I think the next step is generative stuff. Like 
there was very small generative things, right? Like when you say, like, I would create a very simple looking image or right, it spit out some, some sentence that maybe made little sense, but it looked like it was wording things. And so you could see it coming. GANs were big, you know, RBMs, uh, obviously when the uh, large language models came in and, and the, the stable diffusion that builds images, that was a huge step. That would actually surprise me when I started playing with language models and I was like, whoa, this talks to me. Um, that was, that was big. So after, yeah, I, it's always hard to tell, but I think after, after discriminatory machine learning, then there was generative machine learning. And I think, I feel like a big step will be multimodality. Like, I feel like now language models take text and return text, image models return images or read images. Um, same thing with video and stuff, but like humans, we don't operate like that. Like if I tell you something I know, I don't remember if I learn it through text or through an image or through a video or somebody was talking or I saw something like it's all the same to us. Right. And then when, when it comes out, it's the same thing. Like I could, I could explain a concept, but I could also draw an image and I could also write it down and it's no difference, but for, for models, it is different. Like either you do it with a language model or you do it with an image model. So I think joining all those three, uh, or all those, not three, all those many, uh, will be a big step. I think when we start, and I saw it a little bit in Gemini, I think is, uh, by Google. Uh, I've seen a bit of that, uh, and I think that that's sort of the, the next, uh, step. Uh, another step would be like, I think when you move, when you start joining it with things that move like robots or something, I think that will be a big step, but there's also another sort of conceptual thing that I find interesting. And it's kind of like, I remember that before neural networks, it was a lot like things were pretty clever. Like algorithms were pretty clever. They were like probabilistic or, or something you know, where you would study the, the the problem and solve it in a clever mathematical way. And then neural networks came in and just kind of like solved everything easily. And it was, it felt like cheating, right? Like, it's like, if you put everything in a super high dimensional world and learn some stuff with the, the neural network, just so many parameters, it, it solves it better than the super clever Bayesian probabilistic method you had. And that was kind of disappointing. And I find that sometimes that that may that may continue happening right like it it may be like i don't know the other day i, I put into a large language model a little data set of like linear regression and just just from words it solved it right like it was like oh this like that kind of things and i wonder if like language models are going to start like maybe just out of knowing a lot of text be able to solve stuff that not necessarily requiring text but they're just so hyper parameterized that that the solution is somewhere in that space. So it may be disappointing in, in terms of, uh, the cleverness of the solutions, but I think it'll give us better, better solutions. And so also, I guess this, this may go into society, but also like the fact that coding is now easier, right? Like now it's, it's more prompting, you know, like the previous generation had to do assembly and, and cards, punch cards and stuff. I don't know how to do any of that. I do Python. And <laughs> the next generation is going to know English, right? Like or language and be able to code like that. And I, I, I find that exciting because I think that can bring many more people into AI, not just the coders, but anybody who knows anything about the, any problem to solve is going to be able to use.
technology, not just the programmers. So I, I find that part pretty exciting, but that is going to be more, more universal to everybody. And, and do you see as uh, as we increase, uh, you know, the models start getting bigger, um, more parameters and more, uh, you know, bigger context windows and, uh, you know, all that more compute being available, more data being pushed in. Um, where do you see this headed? I mean, what, what do you think is the most exciting part of it? I mean, do you think a, a bigger model is necessarily a better model? You know, is the it's uh, because there is a lot of effort happening, and yeah. So, and I would not name any company here, right? So, company X will come in and say, "Hey, we have a bigger model, and it has more parameters and more uh, token limits, right?" So, um, so where do you think this is uh, going? That's the first part. I mean, do you think a bigger model is better necessarily? And the second next part is, um, how do you think this whole I would call it uh, the race to a bigger or better model. Do you think is that what you see the future is going to be? Yeah, that's a very good question. No, I definitely don't think a bigger model is is a better model, but I do think that sometimes you need to sort of go bigger and then cut the things you don't need. So I think it's necessary to obviously a a bigger model doing the same thing works a little better than a than a smaller model. But then eventually you you know you bring things down you because a bigger model can can definitely overfit or do crazy things. So I think I think getting bigger is one step in in the process of getting smarter. Uh, but I do yeah I I it, it's it's hard to tell again. But I think uh, I think we'll find I think embeddings are the clue to everything, and I think we're starting to get better and better embeddings. And for the, anybody who doesn't know embedding is basically you take an image and be, take into a bunch of numbers or a sentence and take into a bunch of numbers because computers do numbers, right? So a voice or a video and take into a bunch of numbers. So the more you can have that translation, the better. And so if you find a translation that is uh, sort of uh, agnostic to the type of information that sends the image of a dog to this very close numbers to the word dog, and to the sentence dog, right? That the sound, it, it, something like that, I think would make everything better. So I think, I think work in embeddings, you cannot save efforts uh, in embedding. They don't have to be bigger. You don't need to have million, million numbers per word. Like I think if I find a really good embedding, they, they have to be at least thousands. You cannot simply, you cannot summarize data in, in, in less space than, than the data lives. Um, but I think we'll be able to find really good ones and then things become easier, right? Because for example, 10 years ago, classification of language was difficult, right? Like I, if you want to make a spam classifier, I would need to give you a million spam messages and a million non-spam messages, or at least thousands, tens of thousands, right? For, for the, somebody to build a good enough model. Now, four messages, you know what I mean? Because the embeddings are so good that... If I take the message, this a few messages, and I send them to the right numbers, then the math problem becomes much simpler because before the the, the numbers weren't so good. So to tell between spam and non-spam, I needed a really complicated region that would say here you're spam, here you're not spam. But now the embeddings are so good that I may have something very simple where all the spam messages get sent here and all the non-spam messages get sent. 
just draw this line, right? So I think, yeah, I think better embeddings just just make everything easier. And do you think that we will uh, converge towards uh, more uh, more toward um, smaller models, uh, domain specific, small as it, we have started to see this term appearing like small language models as opposed to large language models, right? So. Uh, clever, I think, uh, clever play on words uh, because they are still pretty big. But uh, we get the idea, right? So so do you think that that's where we are converging? I've seen one of our, um, one of the companies, uh, Symbol AI, they actually, one of the partners for our bootcamp, they actually work on this uh, conversational uh, AI, yeah. uh, which is... Uh, the model is called Nebula, right? So, and they claim that that is purely for in a support and a conversational scenario, and it's a it's a smaller model, but a very domain specific model. And then, mm-hmm. similarly, you know, maybe healthcare, uh, financial. Right? So, yeah. do you do you see that uh, as a viable direction uh, that that is going to be the future? I mean, I have seen, for example, embeddings get a little smaller, uh, optimizing for search, for example. You can go from a few thousand to like you know a few hundred, and and they do better. So I I think they because will... of uh, possibly the curse of dimensionality, right? So you you're not too yeah. sparse, and now the concepts are maybe closer to each other. If yeah, yeah, like maybe you live in four thousand dimensions, uh, but it really is seven hundred dimensional, but it's flat, right? Like if I have a if if I live in the three dimensional space, but I'm mostly in a plane, then I'm really in two dimensions. So a lot of data is really more flatter than we think, and so you a lot of advanced techniques can bring stuff into like bring stuff into dimensions down, and then you lose a little bit of data, but you gain a lot in simplicity and power of computation and stuff like that. So I do I do think, and I think it's this is done correctly. There's a and there's a, a like an approach of making everything bigger, but also an approach of when it's bigger, let's let's make it smaller and try to not lose any performance or very little. And I think that that's the right way. Like I think I think that will continue. And I don't think things will be that. I, mean, I don't think the gains are gonna be that things are gonna be bigger and bigger. I think they're just gonna get more clever. As I said data is high dimensional data is complicated and we cannot go down and if we're trying to have models that think like us i think we're i think our brain has a lot of parameters so it's it's hard to bring that down to to very to very few if you want to fit basically all of humans rational thinking into a new letter is gonna be big right um but i hope it's controlled big and perhaps uh, l- let's actually do this, right? So what I'm going to ask you is going to be at the intersection of society and technology. Okay. Talking yep. about guardrails, right? So um, so I know you are an educator, right? Uh, and I know uh, Khan Academy, most notably, they they adopted this in, in the learning and ed tech space. And as more and more companies they start acquiring or adopting generative AI and large language models for as an instructional tool. Um, do you see any risk there for, um, like really any any risk uh, in adopting uh, LLMs 
not just for education in general. Let's start with the general industry. Uh, so, um, you know, anyone who knows how these things work, they have reasons to be concerned, right? So from any yeah. reason to be uh, any, the reasons could be from anywhere from uh, enterprise data security all the way to, you know, uh, you know, wrong information getting in wrong hands to kids getting exposed to information that they should not be, propaganda. Uh, how do you see all of this? Yeah, I mean, everything everything has risks and we've seen it with AI, right? Because AI, the only thing it can do is propagate what we do, right? Like take us and make more of that, right? Uh, and as a society, any technology that that's true with any technology, starting from nuclear technology to internet, right? So if you look yeah. at this, that's true with any technology, any groundbreaking technology. Yeah, fire. I mean, you can use it to cook, or you can use it to, you know, destroying something, right? Like, uh, and everything has unintended consequences, right? Like, I mean, even even go way back, like agriculture, like it, you know, made life more comfortable. We didn't have to go around hunting all the time. But it also like made things, you know, started things like property and, and wars and things like that. And it, you know, we were eating things that we were not prepared for, like that kind of things, like, like any, any, any advancement in, in society, like has its risk, whether they're like obvious or completely unintended. Uh, and the internet has that, you know, now we have access to all the information, but you know, somehow. We didn't get that much smarter. Like, we, <laughs> it's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of manipulation uh, and, and everything, you know? So I think, obviously, this has its risks. And when we've seen in data science that, like, you know, it, it basically, it propagates our personality and it propagates our mistakes as a society, which are, you know, society's racist, society's sexist, society's elitist. It's a, it's a lot of, it's a, a lot of awful things that get, that are in the data, whether like not in, in hidden intrinsically in a way that it's really hard to, to detach and that goes in the models. So that there's no escaping that. And I think we always have to be very, very careful of that. There's always going to be guardrail. They're never going to be enough. I think the only thing that we always have to keep in mind is that these things are tools, uh, like fire is a tool, you know? Uh, we need to use it, but at the end of the day, we can't let it control us, right? Like we can't let it take decisions. I would use language models as a, as a way to help me with a lot of things. But the moment I start taking life decisions based on a language model, then I think that, that that's a problem, right? Uh, let, I can elaborate on, on that, but let's, let's look at education. You know, I think looking at it in the, in the, in the positive side, I think there's a lot to gain because education has a lot of flaws, you know, like we sit in a classroom when we're kids and we're competing for grades. Why do we have to compete for grades? Why can't everybody do well? You know, we're working individually. Why can't we work as a group? You know, at the, at the end of the day, we survive millions of years working as a group. We've been individualistic for not very long, you know? Um, so those those kind of things are, are wrong with education. And I think that they can be fixed with uh, 
I mean, I use I use Chat uh, GPT and large language models here and Tropical and like all all these ones. I use them to to learn. Like I now I I I go into a language model and I start prompting it. Uh, like my videos, I make them like that now. Like I start asking it things. Okay, how do you explain this to me? But now explain it a different way. Now with this little example, help me understand this. Okay, let's focus on this little part of the formula. And you can do that. And and for other things like uh, you know about society, I go okay, tell me about this. And I start analyzing, right? Like, oh, don't you think that this led to that? And and it it helps, you know. And as long as I use it as a tool, and I check my sources because many times it lies to me. Like I've, I've had problems with some of my videos that I put something that the language model told me and it wasn't true. Um, and so I think that's a great tool for education. I think that that if 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 kids or anybody, like adults, anybody can can go in it, you know, ask it things and have it like an expert that you can talk to. It's wonderful. You know, obviously you can, you know, talking to an expert is better, but like many times, you know, you, that resource is limited, whereas you can be talking to these language models and, and, and learning to be critical because what I was saying about, you know, education teaches you to be obedient. It teaches you to follow rules, to, to do things as you were told. Uh, not never to think critically. Never question a teacher in in grade school or high school. Nobody ever goes, "Hey, I think you're wrong." This, you know, we're meant to follow orders, and um, so I think I think we can get, you know, I think I think large language models can be used as a tutor in a very very productive way. And I've been using it myself, uh, and um, and so I'm very I'm I'm very optimistic about that. And then other things, right? Like I mean, education is something that. Is very restricted. Like traditional education, you have to live in a place that happens to be in a good location for a particular school. Some people don't have that opportunity. You have to be in a certain socioeconomic uh, place where you can where you can study. Many people don't have that access uh, chronologically. You know, like if I if I'm 60 and I want to start learning something new, society doesn't really play well with that. You know, uh, all those barriers can be uh taken down with 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 tech education with ai so i'm i'm very very positive about that you know cautiously positive but i but i am very positive uh, but as a as a high school science teacher or a math teacher would you encourage using um chat gpt or bard or one of these applications you have to i mean it's kind of like you can stop kids from using a calculator to do math, like if you if I give a, a kid a hundred sums and additions and subtractions, I can't expect them not to use a calculator at home, right? So what I can do is I make them do harder problems that they even with the calculator they will still need to think. And I think it's the same thing with language models, right? Like I can't stop students from not using ChatGPT or any of these models, right? And at the end of the day. They're gonna use them at working whatever they do, so may as well just make them use them well. So, for example, you know you can ask for an essay, but you could also ask for a five hundred page book, and they need to use ChatGPT for that, right? Like, mm-hmm. so they they would use it. Like, uh, so I I think you you kind of it has to be like a philosophy of if you can't beat them, join them, because at the end of the day, these things are better, and at the end of the day. There, there's, there's a, a fear that we're gonna lose a lot of skills. Yes, 
that maybe, maybe our grandkids will not know how to write essays. But you know what? You and I don't know how to make fire by rubbing rocks or hunt a buffalo. You know what I mean? Okay. So like, we, I love we, this analogy though. Right? So, but because I, I see this as a natural progression when Google and uh, you know the search engine era, Yahoo. Actually, I, I actually love Yahoo as a company for some some discussion for some other time. Right? So I feel sorry that we lost Yahoo because they are the ones who actually brought search mainstream. Right? Google happened much later. Yeah. Uh, but but when search happened and Google was actually one of the like the more popular uh, search engine that I mean when we saw the search engine picking up, you know the, we had the same concern right so and uh, you know all the devs they use Stack Overflow whether we they want to admit or not everyone uses it right so you know so I think these are tools uh, just like you gave this example we don't uh, make fire you know uh, ourselves anymore right so we have other means to do it. Yep. Uh, do you think that educators, uh, high school or elementary school teachers, um, they also have to be somewhat um, upskilled in in the, these technologies because um, they cannot. And uh, when I look at it, right. So if I'm an elementary school teacher, when I give this assignment, hey, write an essay or a poem about this, or you know, some something along those lines. Uh, well, like it will take them less than a minute, right? So do you think the fundamentally the way we approach education or critical thinking, thinking that um, these tools are going to be put uh, or those approaches have to be put in context of the development that is happening in these tools yeah. and the educators, they have to learn these tools to create assignments that uh, create critical thinkers as opposed to, you know, and the, who use these tools efficiently, by the way. Yeah. And I'm glad that we're having to do that, right? Like that we're forced to to change some things that needed to be changed, right? Like these definitely needed to be changed. And it's not an, a full upscaling. Like it's not like, you know, the history teacher has to learn how to program. No, like they still have to know their thing. But I think these language models are 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 easy to use, and I think it's not about being technically savvy, but it's about being creative. Like if you're a history teacher and you use you use a language model to, or you make the students use language model to, you know, understand something in history, to to analyze things, to throw ideas at the computer and have them develop them back. Uh, I think that's very useful, and and uh, anything, any any. Any field I think can can benefit from this, um, in in education, uh, and I and I encourage them. I encourage teachers to, to use it for their own benefit. It helps them as well, and and for the benefit of the students, you know. And uh, what uh, what is the most exciting application or some something that is closer to your heart that you see will result as a it will either start happening or it will it will be better uh, than it has been before. You know, there is this pre-LLM or pre-generative AI era, era and any application, any uh, area of impact in society, um, really any area in our life, uh, you know, it could be education, healthcare, you know, industry, traffic, just anything. Do you have any anything that you can think of where... You think, wow! I mean, 
life is going to be so much better. As as humans, we are going to be so much better as a result of LLMs. Do you have any, have you thought about this? I mean, con- con- concretely, like all, all things I'm excited about, you know, I think, I think medicine, I think uh, any, like car, like transportation, a lot of things can be, can be made better. Um, obviously you and I are educators and I, I always think in education. So I always, I always think, you know, uh, the fact that you can now learn by, by building things, the fact that you can interact because interaction is the most important thing. I don't want to just be sitting down, listening to information. Uh, so that's what excites me more. But what really, really excites me of large language models, and I think that I, I, I want to be like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. And if I'm, if I'm full optimistic, cause I have my pessimistic side, which is we'll end ourselves. Um, but my optimistic side says we will be able to use, uh, language models to have a sort of like, like a second cognitive revolution. You know, I think I look at the early humans, right? The early humans, uh, they were just mostly physical creatures, right? Like the one that would do best is the strongest one, uh, with the smart, like the, with the best arms and strongest arms and legs and, and something. And, and they use their brain very, very little for like little things like, you know, should I hunt that animal or that one? Um, but then they started you know, the cognitive revolution, they started using the brain more to, they went from like, uh, thinking about things that existed, like a, a tree or an animal or something to think about things that didn't exist, like money, for example, which is an agreement, right? Or like a certain mythology, like a, a story of why we exist or the, you know, gods, things like that, uh, that, that, you know, creating, creating stories. And that was a huge step, right? So because we stopped using, like like the brain started being more the useful thing. And now we're at a point that we still have, you know, physical labors, many jobs, but, you know, the, the, the way to succeed more is using the brain more. So like we became from physical beings to rational beings through the use of, you know, machines and, and everything. Every time there's a machine that does more for us, we become more rational and our jobs are more thinking. Now I'm thinking that that's going to be gone too, because now language models can do a lot of our thinking. So we went from physical to rational because the machines could do our physical stuff. Now machines can do our rational stuff. Where do we go? Right? Do we become obsolete? Are we done? Like, are we as good as a machine and that's it? And I believe that that's not the case. And I think we have to look at what is it that we can do that machines can't. And if we do it properly, then we'll be able to transcend to a higher level where the first level is physical stuff, the second level is rational thinking, and then there's a third level, which to me, it involves anything regarding empathy, anything regarding emotional intelligence, anything regarding spirituality, things like intuition, you know, and it sounds silly, right? Because th- these are basically taking decisions that don't require AI and AI really, if you think about it, AI takes very good decisions, but they're all maximizing some variable, right? Either profit or 
the number of patients that are okay or the number of females that I caught in spam. It's always maximizing or maximizing some, some variable. There are a lot of decisions that we take that don't require maximizing or minimizing some variable. And they're normally tied to, 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 to empathy, to caring about others, to thinking as a group, to thinking, you know, that I can't explain with a variable. And I think those are what makes us human. And it sounds silly, right? If I were to tell you in, in a, in a hundred, a thousand years or something, you know, we're not going to be thinking that much rationally, but we're going to be meditating and coming up with the, the, the ideas, the, 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 the decisions that we have to take by, by, by intuition. Like that sounds silly, but it also sounded silly to the cavemen. If I tell them that in the thousand years or thousands of years, they're not going to be using their body so much. They're going to be using only their brain when they only use their brain for very few things. Right now, we only use our, our intuition and our, our, our emotional intelligence for very few things. But I think that that's what's going to be the next level for us. If we do it properly, we're going to transcend that. We're not going to be rational thinking humans. We're going to be much more spiritual. So that's what I'm hoping that 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 this helps speed up. Spiritual and empathetic. Empathetic, you know. And, um, and do you... Uh, uh, and do you um... Do you think humans are by nature? Hum uh, humans do have empathy by by design. Do you so. think they are uh, like that? We are. I think we're born with that, and, and it gets domesticated out of us in in in, in childhood. Uh, we get in, we turn into individualistic beings. We turn selfish. We turn materialistic. Uh, but I think we're born without all those things, you know. And I think we need to like I yeah. I think regardless of tech or no tech. We need to transcend that and like decolonize our mind from all those things, you know. But I think uh, we, we're not, we didn't survive being individualistic for millions of years. We we survived by, by working as a group and by not thinking of you and me as different people. We are the same. We just, you know, happen to look like, look like we're separated, but, but we're not. And I think that what would save society is that if we, if we get rid of that, get rid of the, of the ego. And, uh, you know, you start, start thinking as a group and I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that this step would, will, um, this will be a step in, in that direction because at least we won't be occupied the entire time with, with rational things. And we, we have to pretty much whatever the language model can do is what we have to start doing. Right. So I have hopes. Uh, and you're hopeful about, right? So this is going to be for the better for us, right? So whatever uh, the way things are headed, uh, despite seeing some of the negative, uh, like deep fakes, uh, for instance, right? So, yeah. or maybe, uh, you know, uh, propaganda and all of that. You think that uh, we will be better off as a society as a result of, uh, you know, all the developments that are happening? Well, yes and no. I think the developments help, but I think it's up to us. And I look back and I think uh, it's never just been technology. And I and I have that sort of disagreement with, with many of my tech friends because me, people think we're one technology development away from being a utopic society where everyone's happy and we sing Kumbaya. Like, we're, I, I doubt it because in the past it hasn't happened, you know? Like, when the steam engine came in the, I don't know, 1700s, nobody said, let's... Uh, free the slaves. Nobody, nobody said, "Oh, yeah, we can do work. Let's 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 free the slaves." Like nobody thought that. If anything, it made it worse because it made more trade and more work was needed. Like if anything, it made it worse. 
And so many people think, well, when we have to... And it, easier to bring in slaves, right? So, I mean, And you could it. transport more. Yeah, it was it made it worse. And so now people think, well, now that ChatGPT does our work, then we can just relax. Well, that's... Nobody's going to say that. No, Nobody said, ooh, language models can do our work. Now, finally, we can free the wage workers. Nope. We're going to figure out a way to work ourselves until we die because we've done that with every single technology development. Every time a new technology comes in, we never say, ooh, make it better, make it better. We always take the, the other way. So it's up to us to, you know, I think it's I think it's up to us to use these technologies correctly. Uh I think I think they help, but I think, you know, it it's it's the the, the big changes in society have happened not because technology, but because of a strong change of thinking, a revolution, you know, we get rid of an idea that, that we had before, you know, monarchy came from the, we thought the kings had divine right. And when that ended, we stopped thinking about that, you know, with the French revolution and things like that. So, so I think we need to decolonize our minds of many paradigms that, that we have existing. And that's more up to us. Uh, I think I think technology can help us find things, and and I think, you know, I, I'm I'm I, I'm I'm excited about technological breakthroughs, but I I think we need to use them properly. Uh, so yeah, so we are uh, you know I hear someone who's uh, um, cautiously optimistic, right? So you are uh, you know. Uh, because you're a technologist, you see what could go wrong. But at the same time, uh, I see someone who wants to see uh, things being better in society, right? So, yeah. so do you have any? When I look at it, right? So there, there has to be. Not everyone is going to uh, be. Hey, I'm an I'm a nice human being. Uh, I am not going to do this, right? So then the societies they have to evolve, right? So uh, if I don't have a stop sign or a traffic light likely I will just zoom through, right? So I'm not going to stop, yeah. right? So yeah. So speaking of that, I mean, what kind of ethical and social considerations are possibly um, some legal framework, some uh, some lawmaking? Uh, do, you, do you think along those lines that uh, the society has to evolve uh, in terms of the laws? Because laws, um, how do you handle all, many of these things, right? So. Yeah. Uh, just as an example, I'm not taking one side or the other, right? So New York Times uh, sues OpenAI, right? So how is it different from a human actually going and learning and becoming an expert, right? I read the newspaper and and then we had this unfortunate uh, situation when Taylor Swift, her uh, pictures, I mean, they were doctored and they were all over the internet, right? How do you, how do you protect people, individuals, and this has happened in a high school somewhere in New York as well, right? So how do you protect individuals from this kind of behavior? What kind of lawmaking, uh, what kind of uh, ethical social considerations, maybe parents, they need to talk to their children about this, right? So, you know, yeah, you know, just like they would talk to their children about drugs, right? So, and then, yeah. you know, is, is it going to be part of our upbringing then, you know? How do you see that? I'm uh, I mean, it's maybe the question is a bit ambiguous. I'm looking at the society. How does it shape us? Yeah, it's very complicated, you know? I mean, it's like any technology, fire, right? Like, how do we stop everybody from setting everything on fire? Like, we have regulations, but that doesn't stop, 
me, you know, like, so we have the regulations, we, we have the ways to stop it, you know, the, the firefighters, you know, everything, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's not unstoppable. Like we, we can't stop people from setting things on fire, you know, and never will. Best we can do is a combination, as I said, a combination of regulations, a combination of ways to act when, when these regulations are broken and mostly just teach ourselves to not set things on fire, you know, like, I think that's the most one, you know? So, um, I think for AI is the same thing, you know, uh, can't, you can't stop it. Like regulations are always late. It's very hard. It's very hard to put, to stop. So I don't know, like you can't go back in time. Like these deepfake, like things generate images that look a lot, that steal the work of the artist. You can't go back with that. Like you can't untrain the model, you know, and you can't trace it. So you can say, well, you, this looks a lot like this, it's plagiarism or not. Like this kind of stuff is very ambiguous and is very hard to detect and how to, hard to stop. I would say some, some things we need to do, which is mm -hmm. we can't trust voice or video anymore. Just like I can't trust an email. Like if you get an email from signed with by my name that says, please for please, please wire please money. You won't do it because it's an email. Anybody could have typed it. Well, now if you get a video of me with my voice saying, Hey, Roger, please forward this, this money. You won't do it because you can't trust this kind of stuff. So we'll have to figure out ways around it. But I think humans have to, uh, not, uh, yeah, not, not, not trust this. Uh, I feel like, yeah, we. We're teaching a course of responsible AI right now, and it's, it's very challenging. And we have sort of three levels of, of responsibility. And the, the best that each one can do is like, I, I mean, which one should do the best? It's kind of like an analogy of like electricity, right? Like there's the electric plant, there's the person who builds the oven that uses electricity, and there's the user who has a kitchen and builds and use a, each one has to be as responsible as possible. So the electricity company has to make sure that it's steady and and that it, you know, doesn't have bite spikes and everything. The one who builds the oven has to make sure that it doesn't have a short circuit or something. And the one who uses has to make sure that you don't use it in the wrong way that create a fire. And one has this whole responsibility. So we have the creators of the language models, you know, Cohere, OpenAI, everybody, Google. They have to be as, as responsible as possible and not like, like have to make sure that these models are as, as unbiased as you can and as safe as you can, which is not easy. Then the, um, the people who build the apps have to be careful as well to make sure they're not, you know, you're not propagating all horrible things and then the users as well. So it, it's a responsibility of all of us, but it is, but it is hard to, it is hard to regulate and it, it will always be. Um, but what I think is that it, it kind of. I don't know. It kind of reveals cracks in society that need to be fixed regardless. Um, I'll give you an example. This is my opinion. The, 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 when when uh, like an image model creates, plagiarizes the work of an artist, which is an awful thing. And it's hard to detect, as I said, you know. And artists are thinking, you're ruining, you're ruining my career. You're ruining things, you know. But it can't be stopped. So when, when, when I think of that, I think, okay, we have a problem. Can't be solved. Is it that it was already a problem before? And so this happened to me. Like I, I one day put something into a language model and it was a mathematical question. 
and it answered in a very mathematical procedure. And I knew that some part of it was work of someone I knew. Uh, and so I, I, when I talked to that person one day, I said, look, I took a screenshot and I said, this is exactly your thinking. Like, this is exactly your stuff. And it didn't credit you. Like it didn't, you know, it was like your theorem, but it didn't say. And, 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 and he said, no, it's, it's okay. Like I, I like that my knowledge gets propagated. Right. So I'm thinking, why does this person not get concerned that, that got plagiarized, but the artist does. And then the, the answer was because the mathematician has tenure and a stable life and doesn't have to sell theorems for a living. Like it doesn't be like, look, I discovered a theorem. Every That's time. a very interesting viewpoint. Yeah. I get 10 cents, right? So this person has a, a stable life and so they can get concerned of propagating knowledge and not having to worry about getting credit. Of course, they get credit in like papers and stuff like that, but they didn't have to worry about getting plagiarized by a language model. On the other hand, the artist does get worried because that's a day of eating that goes away if they don't manage to sell that image. So is language models screwing artists or are we screwing artists? You know what I mean? Like, have we been awful to artists beforehand by forcing them to have to sell their images to be able to survive? And could we do better there? Because if we could do better there and the artist was okay being able to like being able to live without having to to sell their images, they wouldn't care. Maybe I'm I'm not. Maybe they wouldn't care if if something looks a lot like their art. They would probably be saying, "Oh my God, this is immortalizing me." You know what I mean? I'm I may be wrong. Maybe an artist comes in and says, "No, Louis, you're wrong." <laughs> maybe I don't discount that possibility. But I think that a lot of things that AI is bringing is cracks in our society that already exist. So we we need to be better with that. You know, uh, so, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of AI problems cannot be solved with AI, but they, they need to go deeper in society and fix the original problem. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I mean, it is basically exposing the cracks, uh, that already exist in society. So, um, do you think the, um, the legislation and, uh, regulatory bodies, they're ready for all of this, because at the end of the day, right? So when cars, we invented cars, right? So we had to come up with traffic lights and stop signs, right? So, you know, we could not say that, yeah, people rode horses earlier and, uh, you know, they self-governed, right? So you, you have to have some sort of regulations. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, which country, which regions do you think are actually doing something and which regions, which countries are oblivious. And I'm, of course, I'm talking about where you see not every country in the world, but uh, countries that are more, you know, more in, ahead in technology, right? So, so yeah. where there is more te technology adoption. That's a good question. I, I don't know of different countries doing different things. Like, I feel like a lot of them are making efforts. Like, there's definitely a efforts. From the tech side, there's efforts from the government side. And I think, yeah, I mean, a, a, an industry cannot regulate itself because it's a conflict of interest, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, and many, many companies, um, I mean, the shareholders actually or the board actually gets to decide yeah, what direction to take, right? So, and, yep. 
So it's, like, a, it's a different loss function. Let me put it. It's a different optimized. I mean, they are optimized in a completely different optimizing uh, equation uh, as opposed to, you know, not necessarily best interest of uh, humanity yeah. all the time. Yeah, exactly. So if you if you regulate yourself, it's going to happen what's happened with every industry that has regulated itself, which is which is chaos. So I think there are definitely the external uh, ex external forces regulating this. Um, but it's a, it's a difficult problem because things change all the time. I mean, law goes much slower. Uh, it has to, you know, uh, have to think about things more carefully, whereas tech is kind of like, does it work? Ship, you know, launch. It's a different s speed of things. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. I think, you know, um, I think regulations are, are absolutely needed. They can only go so far. Um, and I think it's, it's like security, right? Like you can put a police at, a, at every corner, but why are cities safer than others? And the reason is because in some places there's less social inequality. You know, if you go to a place where nobody needs to rob, they won't rob. If you go to a place where people are starving, there will be, there, there, there will be insecurity comes from there and no amount of police will be able to, to, to stop that. They may make things worse, you know? And so I think. You know, if we have a society where it's not, you're not in a necessity to to do something bad, that's the only way to stop things. So, again, revealing cracks in our society. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard problem. Like, I don't know the solution. Yeah, it, it is a hard problem. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I I'm asking you difficult questions, I guess, right? So, no, I like them. But I, I'm 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 trying to figure this out, right? So I'm trying to yeah, yeah. understand all of this. Uh, you know, as you as you as you learn more about these technologies, as you learn more about what they are capable of. I mean, these are the questions that naturally uh, come to your mind as a citizen of this uh, this world, right? So you try to see. Uh, try to understand how this is going to impact you uh, and the future generations. So, do you foresee more of a more of a symbiotic relationship between humans and AI? You know, so we have traditionally uh, talked a lot about human-computer interaction, right? So now, do you th see some kind of uh, do you think machines will surpass human intelligence? And uh, uh, if they do. Uh, or if they don't, I mean, so whichever it is, how do you see this kind of, uh, you know, coexistence? How do you see it evolving? Yeah. Y yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think, yeah, we'll surpass human intelligence as we know it, like rational intelligence. Yes. Like the same way that they're faster than us, right? They're stronger than us and they're more precise than us. Uh, they, they already succeeded the human body. They were just missing the brain. And now they are succeeding the brain. So anything, anything that's rational about us, any any decision that we take uh, rationally and with data, anything data driven or any anything like that, I think they'll be able to do it better. And that doesn't mean that we're done. And that's where I, where it, where it, it comes again that we have a higher level that's not rational. And I think if if we manage to do a symbiotic relationship, it will be like what we have with the current machines, right? Which is that, yeah, I mean, a car runs faster than me. Can't pretend it doesn't, right? But I use it to go faster, right? 
uh, I don't race against it. I'd be silly to race against the car, right? But I drive it and it gets me somewhere farther. And in the same way, yeah, I think if I, if we manage to develop our mind that is not rational, you know, like at our, our higher level emotional into intelligence and intuition, if we develop that much more than what we have it right now, we'll be able to drive these cars, these, these models, these machine learning models, uh, to get us to much farther places. And I will be able to do things and imaginable things, you know, I'm, I'm being super optimistic in this, in this answer, but we'll be able to do great things. We have no choice, right? So, you know, yeah. we, we have to remain optimistic, right? So yeah. we don't have a choice. Yeah. And, and so we'll, we'll be taking the high level decisions, uh, that are not based on some numbers, but that are based on much higher things and use the machines to, the, the, the language models to, to do the mundane rational things that our mind does right now in the same way that now I'm using a bunch of machines to do the mundane things that my body would have had to do, uh, back in the day, you know? Um, yeah. so yeah. Okay. So, um, so you have a lot of fans out there, right? So even within my, uh, team, uh, my young, younger data scientists, uh, so they were absolutely excited when they heard Lewis, uh, Lewis is going to be. Uh, teaching at the boot camp, and some of them actually attended the session, uh, and they loved it, right? So, so um, for any aspiring data scientists um, in general, what would be? Or when I say data scientist, I still consider this a broader term, right? So, uh, you know, it, it includes LLM, right? So traditionally, we have used this term for you know classic machine learning and analytics, but assume now LLM is part. LLMs are also part of this. Uh, tool set. So what are some of the, uh, what what would be your advice for them to, um, how can they excel at what they do? Uh, how can they be really good at uh, what they do? Yeah. Yeah, no, great question. And thank you. And, and say hi to them. I'm, I'm very happy to, I was very happy to give a talk at the uh, Data Science Dojo and, and, and it was a great crowd. So yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, to the, uh, well, I mean, I think one thing I did, which I was forced to but some people are not, is is that I had to follow what I liked. I couldn't do anything else, right? Some people are able to do things they don't like. Um, but even then, you know, you should still still try to follow what you like. It's like the gradient should be your joy. So like there's we always kinda know. Like we never sometimes have other ideas and paradigms and stuff, but we always kinda know what we like. Like if you ask anybody what would you do if you if if there was no if if everybody want made made the same salary and and there was job security whatever you do what would you do? And for me it was teaching, but I never knew it concretely. And everybody has that, so just try to find it, try to try to explore and and always be true to yourself and don't worry about job title and things like that. And obviously that may be a tone deaf thing to say because we have to survive and sometimes some jobs just keep you know more money than others. But to the extent that is possible, to the extent that you can explore, never stop uh, exploring. That's one. And in order to learn stuff, I I feel like uh, I have a way to learn things that is, I, I imagine that that is like soccer, for example. Let's say somebody wants to learn soccer and they don't know anything. What do you do? Do you give them a book of soccer rules and techniques and say, read it and then come back? No, 
you give them a ball and say, go, kick it, run with it, explore, experiment, get some friends and play and, and, and kick it between you and each other and then enjoy it, you know? And then later I can tell you what the rules are and then, okay, you, and then I can tell you more. And then, and then if you become an expert, like if you become really good at it, then I give you a book and I say, look, these are techniques or these are the rules, you know, but, but the book is the last step, not the first one. And I, and that drives me crazy that when people ask experts, how can I get into the science? And the first thing they do is, oh, you have to know how to program. You have to know linear algebra. You have to know calculus. You have to know blah, 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 blah. They give them a list of things. No, that's not, like, to me, that's not. I have good work for people. But to me, that's backwards. And so what I say, you want to learn it, you just, just go on a language model and start prompting it and start asking it how it works and start asking it stuff. Soon you'll realize what it can do and what it can't and how to hack it and how to, and that's prompt engineering. That's like the, which may be the next thing, you know, I, I don't know, but it may be the next data scientist. Um, and then when you say, okay, well, now I want to do one more step. Uh, I want to fine tune a model to ask, answer questions about soccer. Okay. So then you go and read something and learn how to plug in some data to, to like you, you, you're basically learning in the practical way. And then later, if you're so into it, then I'll be like, okay, here, let me teach you some linear algebra. but that's late, you know, or programming or something like play with it, you know, play with it, enjoy it the way you would learn a sport. And I find that that's, that's how I try to learn things. And that's how it, how it works. And, uh, and it's more fun. Hey. Yeah. And, uh, have fun. Right. So I mean, so at the end of the day, always look for that and yeah. for, yeah, the things that matter to you, right? Like if for data scientists, I say, take a data set of something you like, maybe something of a mission that you have in, in life, or maybe some sport you enjoy, some movies you enjoy, like take a data set of that and play with it, plot it, see what, what relations there are, uh, are there two groups of data, one here, one here? Well, what are they? You know, like ask questions about that, but with your fun in, in, involved, like with your, your hobbies or whatever you like. And that's the way that it, it doesn't feel like learning. It feels like, like you're just exploring stuff. Uh, and then the, the data science becomes the second thing because you're just enjoying about something you like already, you know? Um, so I think that's, I think that that's to me that the, the way to learn and I, when I teach I try to have that. I, I try to have everybody do their own thing and have it as personalized as possible. So, because everybody's different, you know, and we all have something different to offer. There's no reason to put ourselves in a in a mold and, and deny to the world all we can give it, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's uh, uh, switch gears and uh, shift gears and go back to you and the personal side of you, right? So. Sure. So uh, I, I follow you on social on LinkedIn, and I see almost like an activist. Uh, you know, someone who cares deeply about uh, society, humanity. Doesn't matter whether they are from Colombia or they are, you know, from Lewis's family. So they could be any people anywhere, and you're pretty vocal about that. So where did you get this from, and do you think that? Uh, you know, as a technologist, uh, should I be worried about what's happening elsewhere or should I be only worried about, hey, I want to be the best at what I do and I can't change things, right? Uh, so 
Yeah. Ah, that. Yeah, that's. It's a very, very strong. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very strong side of me, and um, I it's always been. I mean, when you grow up, you know, as in an, in an unequal society, like it's. Sometimes it's hard to see injustice, but when you see it, you can't unsee it, right? And the more, the more you see it, uh, like, you know, when you see imperialism and you see the genocides that are happening right now, I think we're technologists, but at the end, we're human first, you know? And I think not being enraged when we see a genocide, like what's happening, like the many that are happening right now, it's it's impossible, you know. I and I find it impossible. And I I tried for a while to not post stuff, especially on LinkedIn, which is a different uh, flavor than say Twitter or Instagram or something. Um, so I kept it for a while, but this has escalated so much. Um, and and we're seeing it in real time. You know, this is not something that's happening behind in the news or something. This is something that we're actually seeing it being recorded with with phones and uh it's it's very difficult uh, to see it you know it's very difficult to see that it's happening and not be able to do very much about it and i i wonder a lot what what technology what what we can do uh at the very least uh i think with education we can teach people to be more critical because i think that's the problem that we have right like we are sort of domesticated to be followers in, in, in our school. We just think of the teacher as this figure that we never question. So then we don't question the news. We don't question the corporations. We don't question governments. And so we have some, some, some paradigms that we just never, never question. And I think there's a very strong, uh, strong thing here that, that people have, which is frankly, that, that we are taught that some people to, to see some people as less humans than other, you know, if this kind of genocide happens in in say in a, in a developed country in Europe or something, everybody gets concerned, which they should, you know. Because all of us should, right? So all of, all of us, us, right? Whenever something happens, we should all get concerned. But we are selective, right? Some places it happens and we go, oh my God, humans dying, and other places. Uh, it happens and nobody blinks an eye. If it happens in Palestine, nobody blinks an eye. If it happens in, in Africa, nobody blinks an eye. Middle East, so many places. Just people have less sensitivity. And I think it's just that inherent idea that that some people are considered less humans than others. And, and that's not true. I think anyone that gets massacred or gets tortured or anything, I, I feel it like if it was... You know, my my brother or sister, my mom, or and that's what we should feel. We are a human race. You know, I think I, we should we should all feel it, and I think we all feel it internally. But we have so many layers upon layers of 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 colonization in our mind, or of domestication that we that we refuse to uh, that we just we just it doesn't get to the surface. You know, uh, and when I think of why why I'm being invocal and some people have been wonderful, you know, the Paul Bigger and, and people have done a lot um more vocal than me and have and have actually um risked more than than I have. I I just think that 
you know, what are you, when you look at this in, in 40, 50 years, what's it going to be, right? Like, obviously, history always figures it out much later. You know, we know slavery was bad. We know the Holocaust was bad. We know, uh, you know, apartheid was bad. We know segregation was bad. We know genocides that happened in Africa and Asia. We, we know they're bad. But at the moment, they are controversial, right? At the moment, when apartheid was happening, there was a, there was controversy. Like people were saying it's good. Some were they were saying it's bad. Now we all know it's bad, you know? Um, so, so in the future, we're all going to know. And the question is, what do we do about it? And were we at least vocal about it? And I think I'll regret not having been vocal about it. And I think, I think it helps. I think people sharing, this is, this is something new. It's the first time that, that we all kind of have a voice and yes, it sometimes gets, the algorithms get quieted and stop. But I think this is a time when we all have a voice and, and we should use it. And I'm conscious that I have a little bit of privilege there, right? Because some people write to me and they're more junior and they say, I wanna, I wanna be vocal, but I can't because my career is in danger. And I understand. And if I was in their position, maybe I'd be. Or some people are more, more important than me and they have actually like people underneath whose careers depend on them and they can't lose funding and they can't lose support. And they also can't be vocal, you know? So I'm in this kind of sweet spot. And um, and I, I feel like I can, I have, I have to. Uh, and there's probably a lot more that, that I can do and a lot more that we can do. I've been involved in driving violence and groups and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to witness. It's difficult to feel, you know, Do you think it is because of our lack of critical thinking ability or do you yeah. think humans are inherently good? It is just that they don't have the information or they are unable to process the information that is at their disposal? I think so. I, I think we're born good. I like to think that. I think this society makes us individualistic because it's easier to control a group of millions of people that are individual and playing for themselves and for their interest and having different uh, stratifications where these ones have more privilege than this ones and so they have to protect it and putting people against each other i think it's it's not natural i think we are born without knowing we're different you know if we're i i, I like 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 the ants or the bees or something where they are just a group and they work as a group as a collective consciousness they don't really think oh I'm an ant and you're an ant, but I'm going to try to get the best. No, they, they work collectively. I think we are that when we're born, but that, that love for, for others and that, that gets quickly domesticated out of us by making us compete for scarce, artificially scarce resources like grades and things like that. And by making us like pitting us against each other, um, and, and, and making success an individual thing as opposed to a, a group thing uh, makes us like that. And then we're easier to manipulate uh, because it just feels like, you know, somebody who's getting oppressed is, is not me. So why, why should I care? You know, and perhaps dehumanization as well, right? So you, you sort of, pre you present the other kind uh, as yeah. uh, not civilized enough or not 
human yeah. about. And they that's are, how they are. Yeah. And that's how they got away with it. Gen with the genocide of the indigenous people in the Americans and in Oceania and in Asia and in Africa, like that's how you get away with with genocide by putting the other group as as savages. When many times they're way more, <laughs> way more yeah. white. Like the Eastern cultures are, are so much wiser, you know. And indigenous are are so are so wise. I've been having now that I come back to Colombia, I have the opportunity to 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 meet the, the indigenous and talk and, and learn more about about their their culture and they're they're way ahead of us in in terms of uh you know in terms of group thinking and in terms of 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 everything so i think i um i definitely yeah i i think this this sort of uh way of, of making the others look like they're there's habit and it's an awful thing but it's what is what uh allows for atrocities to to happen and for people to be um to be apathetic about it, right? Because at the end of the day, is 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 apathy what what allows all these all these atrocities to happen? And, and empathy, we I mean, the irony is that a lot of us we we keep talking about empathy in all the HBR articles, and then internally within the you know the corporate environment, we are taught about this yeah. empathy, right? Uh, and teamwork. And somehow, as humanity, right? So, as we uh, zoom out of this, we forget about this that these principles actually also apply as humans. Yeah, we're we're learned to have like you know in a, in a small group, right? Like in 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 a group of our team or our company, like try to work as a group, um, but never never across all humanity. You know, I think we come up with the. Uh, I think it, yeah, even question the nuclear family, for example. Like I, you know, it's obviously nice. The nuclear family is a nice concept, but at the end of the day, we're tribal. Like we're we're meant to be in bigger groups and and care all about each other, right? Like when you when you ideally we would, if you want to control people, you put them as individuals. Um, mm -hmm. What obviously individuals can reproduce, so we have to go one let them pair. That's the most, you know, one can do. Uh, so we have like sort of it's tiny, tiny units mm -hmm. of tiny, tiny and, and as the, the smaller the unit, the easier it is, it is to control. But, uh, at the, at the end of the day, yeah, I, I, I think, I think there are some, some small groups where you can, where, where you see empathy happen. Uh, but it, it should, it should be much, you know, we, we should be able to, to have empathy for every for every human being and for every living being, because, you know, let's not talk about how we treat the animals or the planet. That's a, okay. that's a bad story. <laughs> and you're optimistic about um, the decades and the centuries to come as human? I hope so. I mean, I think I, I'm optimistic, as I said, you know, either, either we can go either direction, either we annihilate ourselves or or we figure out how to, how to live in peace and uh, how to live in harmony uh, so it, we have the power now to annihilate ourselves completely so it 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 could go either way I'm, I'm hoping it goes the way of uh the way of all all figuring this out and and advancing as a as a society we'll see hmm. but i'm optimistic yeah i mean we don't have any other option right so pretty much we have to remain optimistic yeah yeah 
So, Louis, uh, I'm absolutely enjoying the conversation, but I think it, the conversation, I mean, all good things, they have to come to an end, right? So maybe I will just uh, start wrapping up. So I will throw some rapid-fire questions at you. Uh, so given your background as a mathematician, right. where you have been, uh, you know, so based on your background, I created these rapid-fire questions, and you have to answer very quickly and maybe try to rationalize a little bit as well, right? Okay. So. So, um, one word answer: calculus, uh, calculus, or algebra. Um, algebra. I'm more of a discrete person than like a tiny delta continuous person. So yeah, algebra. Okay. Uh, pi or uh, Euler's number? Ooh, I'm more of an Euler's number, kind of underrated. Yeah. Uh, is that? But it gets all the attention. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and why is that? Uh, you know, I think uh, I like E is kind of the number that multiplies most by adding the least. You know what I mean? Like, for example, if I want numbers to add to 20 uh, and I want to have the biggest product, I can have like 19 times 1 plus times 1, which is 19, but I can have 10 times 10, which is 100. And the best I can do is 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3 right? Because it's the closest to E. So the closer you are to E, the more you multiply by adding the least. For example, E to the X is always bigger than X to the E. E is that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that's that one, one of the reasons I like E. Okay, that's that's wonderful. Um, yes, so oh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, <laughs> pi, pi, pi is <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, pi is also, I mean, a mysterious number. So, I mean, that's yeah. why I put you in a tough spot here, right? So it was a difficult spot. It was a tough spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. which yeah. do you like the most, you know? Yeah. Uh, Bayes theorem or Euler's identity? Ooh, I love Bayes theorem, but you can't beat Euler's identity. It's just, I mean, Bayes theorem is cool because you use it, we use it without knowing all, to make all our decisions, right? Like we, we have our idea of what things are and then we get more information. So we change the probabilities in our head. Uh, so base theorem is pretty close second, but you cannot beat all this identity as the most beautiful equation in math, like e to the i pi plus one equals zero or minus i pi, sorry. Woof. One of those. Okay. I think it's e to the i pi plus one equals zero, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, rag or fine tuning? Oh, it's rag, but you need both. You know, fine tuning is like putting your model in college so it learns more stuff. But then RAG is like giving your model a book to answer questions or Google search. Um, I find that RAG is the ultimate thing that can end like hallucination. So I'm going to go with that, but fine tuning you absolutely need. Okay. Um, yeah. You have lived in, both in Toronto and San Francisco, right? Yeah. Which one? Toronto. San Francisco is cool, but expensive. And uh, well, Toronto is too. I'm more diverse in Toronto. And like the cold there? Not the cold. No. Toronto. That's the only downside, I guess. A year and the other. Yeah. San Francisco has beautiful weather. Absolutely. Um, oh, big. Love San Francisco, but I'm going to go with Toronto. Okay. And forgive me for the pronunciation uh, for the next uh, that I'm saying. So, and correct me if I'm wrong here. Right? So, uh, Bandilla Paisa uh, or Ayako? Ayako. I'm from Bogota, so ajiaco is the plate in Bogota. It's a soup with potato and chicken, which kind of good for when it's cold. Bogota's kind of cold, not really, but it's in a mountain. Bandeja paisa is in the Medellin plate. I love Medellin, but 
I'm from Bogota and I'm going to go for the Ajiaco. And I was looking at Bahia Paisa. Is it like paella in Spain? Is it something similar? Because I the, the recipe that I saw, it's similar rice and, like a, you know, sausages yeah. and all of that. It's like a platter with everything. It's yeah. intended to like you have it once a day and then go work the fields the entire day. So it's got, it's got plantain, rice, um, ground beef, uh, pork, like crunchy pork, um, mm -hmm. beef, an egg. Uh, avocado. Uh, I'm missing half of the ingredients. Uh, an arepa is like a corn thing. I mean, it's if you have one, you're in a food coma for three days. Um, I like it. Yeah. yeah. But I hear. Okay. That, <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's great. Uh, uh, so, uh, what is the most beautiful mathematical equation? Uh. I, well, I already said Euler's identity, so Euler's identity, but actually I'm going to go with the other, another, um, a less known Euler fact. Uh, vertices minus edges plus faces equals, I think that one's pretty cool. So if I have a square, for example, what do I have? Four edges, mm -hmm. uh, four vertices, and one, and well, two faces because it's the inner outer. So outer. four minus four plus two is two, right? And actually, if you're if you're in the sphere, it's two. Like in the plane, it's a huge sphere. But in torus, it's different. If you're in a place with holes, it's different. So it's B minus E plus F equals something different with the genus, with the holes of the the number of holes that you have in your surface. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, I, that one is pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, what is the most underrated uh, or underappreciated mathematical concept? Well. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think a bunch. I mean, I think one that I that is less obvious is this: like you can have, for example, I can make a polygon of as many sides as I want. I can have a triangle or a square of four sides or a pentagon or a seventeen gone and a fifty-nine gone, and it's very easy. But a polyhedron, I can only have a few of them, right? I can only have a tetrahedron with four faces, a cube with six faces, an octahedron, a dodecahedron, or a icosahedron with 20, 12, 24, 3, 4, 6, 8, 12, 20. Mm -hmm. And why can't I have a polyhedron of any number of sites that is regular? And believe it or not, the answer is not with areas or lengths of things or angles. It actually comes from the V minus E plus F uh, equals 2 equation. It's, uh, it's a matter of you can't count edges and pieces and points in the correct way, unless you are in one of these few cases. So that's, that's underrated. I think, uh, I don't know, like, yeah, like maybe, yeah, that, that, that would be one. Fractals I also like, I mean, I think the fact that you, you know, we have dimensions, right? Like an edge is dimension one, uh, plane is dimension two, a cube is dimension three. Fractals can have any dimension, like logarithm of something. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's pretty cool. I think those two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Favorite mathematician. Oh, I have two. Galois, which is tremendously underrated. He was a genius. Died at 21 in a duel. He was a huge revolutionary and uh, died at 21. And he would have done a lot more, you know, math would be different if he had lived longer, but he's the one who answered, you know, you know, those old mathematical questions of like uh, the Greeks had, if you can trisect an angle. Like you can bisect an angle with square and compass, 
cut it in two, but trisecting it is hard. It's impossible to do it with string or just finding a square with the same area as a circle or finding a cubed that is twice as volumetric, as big volume as the other cube. The, the Greeks pondered with those questions many years ago, and it was like Galois in 1800 that developed the math that you could use to solve those problems, and it had nothing to do. It was Galois fields and, and groups, um, and uh, come up with the most beautiful proof that you cannot do those. So yeah, Galois was amazing. And the other one, actually, it's closer to my heart because it's Hittipatia of Alexandria. And uh, I'm a huge fan because uh, she was more of a popularizer. Like she was, uh, she was, she does what I like to do, which is take the stuff that exists and understand it better. And so like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan because yeah, she broke many, many barriers. And uh, so, so Hipatia would be my, uh, those two, I think are, are my favorite uh, mathematicians. Okay. And I promise this is the last one, right? So favorite machine learning or AI textbook? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm biased. Uh, I like, I like learning. Broking machine learning. That's a very biased answer, but, uh, and, and this is with your coworker, uh, uh, the, the, your, um, uh, peers from Cohere, right? No, that's, that's mine. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm sorry for the biased answer, but I like it. I have a hard time understanding machine learning books. They always go to the formulas immediately, and it's hard. But I'm going to give you some, some a, a list because actually Jay Alomar's book is coming up pretty soon on LLMs. That one's really good. And uh, my other two teammates have great books too. Sandra Kublik has a book on, on GPT. And and Mior has a book where he, uh, Amar has a, a book where he explains uh, machine learning in like uh, like images and stuff. It's a PDF. Should take, take a look. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's 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 about like you can you can um, like it's all with 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 images like explaining machine learning, but like it's all all visual. Really helps uh, someone like me that needs to learn with with visuals. So yeah, my uh, those those I really like. Okay, so Luis, um, we'll have to close it now. Uh, I know you will. You took the time out uh, on a weekend. So thank you so much. It was a privilege to have uh, you, um, you. At, at our first episode. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation too. That's wonderful. And thank you for the work you do. And uh, I'm a big fan. So, so thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Lewis. Thank you.